listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I was uh, in the pool with my daughter. She's three. And um, uh, teaching a three-year-old how to swim is really fascinating because you're confronted in every single moment with the necessity to pay absolute and total attention to what's going on. And at the same time, you need to be able to let go. And when you see a little three-year-old flailing in the water, reaching her head up gasping, you know, and then putting her head back down in the water, the tendency is to, rather than let go, it's to, I'm not gonna let this happen. So it's an amazing practice. <laughs> I'm sitting there uh, uh, watching, watching her, uh, Daddy, watch this. And, you know, and then she'll jump into the water and like, I'm like panic stricken. You know? <laughs> like, come on, babe, you can do this, you can do this. And then trusting that despite the flail, there is enough of a survival instinct and enough skill on her part that she can pull this thing off and that hopefully I'll have the, the sense about me to reach in if there is some potential disaster. <laughs> um, anyway, so she, she just, Dad, Daddy, watch this. And she jumps in and she's just all over the place and everything. And rather than like a breath, like <sighs> something like that, it's like, <gasps> and then again, you know, and they, <gasps> you know, <clears throat> horrible, horrible look of just, panic on her face and I'm still I'm just holding it holding it holding it and then I put my arm out there you know she's within reach and she grabs my arm quite gently comes up <laughs> I'm a great student <laughs> I'm a great student and you're a great teacher <laughs> and I thought that was just the sweetest thing you know and she couldn't of course see me tearing up at that point you know but it was just like oh you know and getting a little better and a little better and a little better each time, trusting herself, trusting her panic, trusting, you know. And you know what? That's really kind of like spiritual work. In so many ways, you are asked to jump in. And hopefully, I won't grasp. Hopefully, whoever you have as a teacher will not grasp. Hopefully, they will not care so much in the outcome. Hopefully they know how to swim. <laughs> we'll go over this in greater detail uh, in, the, in the talk uh, later on. But I just thought this was such a cool thing. I'm a great student and you're a great teacher. It's like, thank you. Thank you. That is really sweet of you. Now swim back. <laughs> Last week we were speaking along these lines. We were speaking of the three faces of spirit and how we were looking at the third person perspective of spirit, the second person, and the first person. So just to review, the third person is when we look at spiritual work or practice as it, something to study. We, we study 
spirituality. We study God. We study, right, we study it in the academy. Any of you ever took a religious studies class or anything like that? That's third person. That's a third person approach to spirit. Incredibly valid because it informs each of the other two views. What's the second person? The second person, uh, rather the, uh, the second face of spirit, is when we actually allow there to be a dialogue. We actually read scripture. We dialogue with the scripture. Okay? We let uh, practices inform what it is that we're doing, whether it be a chant, a prayer, a contemplation, we suddenly develop a relationship with spirit. God's second face, if you will, really kind of comes in, into play in this, in this moment when we start actually looking at the Lotus Sutra, or we start looking at the book of Psalms, or we start looking at the Quran, or we start looking at any scripture that can actually inspire a deeper, a deeper relationship with God. Now, of course, we could screw that up. There are all sorts of, uh, you know, pitfalls on each of these levels. But in second, the second person there, there are uh, a lot. Because the tendency is to look at a particular scripture, let's say, and go, up, oh, word of God. <laughs> I'm right. You're wrong. Okay? But if we can let a relationship with practice and scripture, if we can let it actually inform itself through us, through our practice, we've got some great, great, great stuff that actually leads us into the first person approach to spirit. What is first person? First person is realization. First person is con contemplation. First person is the zendo. First person is really what we anchor our work on here. And my point last week was to say that, you know, as much as we are really anchored kind of in the first person approach to spirit, that as a teacher, my whole thing is to help each one of you kind of uncover that truth beyond name and form for yourselves. I'm trying to articulate as best I can each and every single week uh, some pointers on allowing for a direct realization. Sometimes I fail miserably, sometimes I succeed. I have no idea which one's gonna, it doesn't really matter. But it's like this, you know, this work, this first person approach that we, we do so much in here can be really informed by each of the others. Those of you that know a lot about spirituality, know a lot about God, know a lot about Christianity or Buddhism or whatever, this can inform that. Those of you that have a second-person relationship with uh, spirit, you're really kind of into scriptural or, or practice orientation, things like that, that can support what we're doing here. All good. It's all good, as long as we don't cling to it. Now, what ended up happening was really fascinating. I had uh, uh, a few emails from practitioners this last week who were saying, it seemed like you were onto something big there I was so confused, and I didn't want to sound stupid, so here's my question now. You didn't want to sound stupid, huh? Please risk at that level. Risk sounding stupid. For God's sake. <laughs> for spirit's sake. For the infinite's sake, please risk. Here's why. 
That's your job. The teacher, the teacher has a tremendous responsibility, a series of responsibilities. So does the student. And it's very easy to kind of just, you know, strap yourself in and, you know, just kind of break out the uh, popcorn and Coke and say, all right, Mike, cook. <laughs> you know, or whoever it is, whoever the person is sitting on the cushion in front. Uh, it's, it's really easy to kind of just say, all right, come on, entertain me. That was a good talk. Wasn't as good as three weeks ago. Man, that one was really good. It's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Now, what's your responsibility? Your responsibility is to come to the teaching. Okay, bring yourself to it wholeheartedly and sincerely. If the questions are arising or the confusion is arising, it's working. If you decide, however, not to ask, the question that starts to burn or address the confusion that starts to resonate within you, you're losing a great opportunity. Not that I'm going to give you an answer. I mean, I'll give you something. It may satisfy, it may not. But that's not the point. In the act of questioning, we develop an ever-widening window of opportunity for awakening. And that window of opportunity, that awakening, allows us to exist in the world without the filter of ego. And the minute we can start meeting our life consciously from that place is the moment that we are awakened by all things and all things are awakened by us and that we can move through the world just a little differently. Our perspective shifts rather radically. We become agents of peace. Our orientation shifts and expands. We evolve. And the world needs that. The world needs your evolution, your participatory expanse is critical right now. So looking at our meditation tonight as we sit still, it's for a purpose. It's to save the world, quite honestly. It's to actually allow for a shift in your consciousness. And as that shift in your consciousness begins to kind of occupy a certain spaciousness or begins to inspire a certain spaciousness within you, it can become contagious. Let's all get sick. <laughs> So I was
was speaking with a fairly well-known teacher a few weeks back um, from a different tradition, and we were discussing this idea of, uh, you know, what it is that makes a great teacher, and uh, uh, you know what it is uh, that that you know should be done and shouldn't be done, um, you know, aside from the obvious, you know. As I, I've mentioned before again and again, the spiritual marketplace is filled with people that may be really quite masterful at various uh, states of consciousness. They may be able to articulate things from the infinite really beautifully, uh, but they're not trustworthy, let's say. Or they abuse uh, you know, their, their position, either through sex, drugs, or money. Or, you know, it, I mean, it's really, really kind of a, a, a very common song that's sung within uh, spiritual communities, um, and a tragic one. Anyway, this guy, this guy was saying, you know, it's it's really, it's really interesting because we spend all this time talking about teachers and what what teachers should be doing, and to be sure they have a responsibility. But what about the student? What are the students' responsibility? What is the students' responsibility as they start showing up, you know, and engaging in this great search? And our, our discussion, I thought, was really, really, really fascinating. He's, and he's been in you know, uh, difficult situations before and so forth. And I'm not going to mention his name, because if I mention his name, it's, number one, it's, I think it's just kind of bad form. Uh, uh, but, but it's especially, I think, uh, can, cloud kind of the, can cloud kind of the dialogue I'd really like to have, or at least the talk I'd like to give, which is just this idea of what is it that, as you begin to take your spiritual search seriously, what do you begin to look for in a teacher? And I came across this, this, uh, uh, this set of notes that I took, uh, I guess it was 19, uh, it must have been 87, like summer of 87. And uh, uh, the big thing, you know, it's like, you know, what am I looking for? And uh, the, as I started kind of listing these things out, you know, what am I looking for in, uh, you know, in my spiritual life? I know something's missing and it doesn't seem to, everything I've tried doesn't seem to work, you know, but I'm really looking for a guide that can help me uncover truth. And the, uh, the, this, uh, this set of notes that I had actually came from a conversation I had with a very close friend at the time who was way into uh, spiritual stuff, and he said, the number one thing, and I still think this is true today, the number one thing is that you have to recognize that a, a spiritual teacher and their version of the teaching and the community that they surround themselves with makes a massive difference in the type of depth that you can uncover within yourself. And I think he was spot on in this. And he said the number one thing that can help facilitate that is trust. Can you trust the man or woman that's sitting in front of you? So I got that down. It's trust. That was big. And then he kind of started to lit. He, he made a list, and, and I, I was able to kind of pull these things out. I thought it was really kind of cool. Um, uh, the qualities uh, that... that uh, Craig pointed out to me all those years ago was that uh, trust 
in addition to trust, they have to have just, they have to be able to exemplify proper ethical behavior. He said, they have to be a good meditator. Have you ever, um, have you ever met someone who is totally scattered? Totally scattered. And how you're like, please talk to me. I'm right here. I'm right, you know, and they're, you know. Can, can your spiritual teacher actually look at you fully? Can they see you? Can they hear you? Is there a single pointedness in their concentration? Next one. He said they should not be ego bound. They should not be ego bound. It's not that they should be ego less. Make sure there's a distinction there for everybody. If someone is ego bound, it means quite literally that they see the world through glasses known as ego. That everything, that, that those lenses actually refract everything in their world. That's ego bound. Ego-less is a psychotic person. If someone has no ego, it means that there is no boundary. And if there is no boundary, you have even worse issues to deal with. Okay? So they actually have the ability to inform small self with big self orientation. Does everybody get this? Does that make sense? So instead of, instead of being ego-less, okay, they're just not ego-bound because big self informs that ego or small self or mind, whatever you want to call it, okay? No. Not okay? No. Okay. Big self, my term big self, basically, is our existence, is our reality beyond the constraints of thoughts and feelings. In other words, whenever you have, that's, that's where the mind, the mind is always evaluating, compartmentalizing, okay? Thoughts, good thought, bad thought, from the past, from the future, it's, that's all there in the mind. And then our feelings are actually when those thoughts have enough weight and resonance to carry into our body and we develop what's an emotion, a disturbance that we call an emotion. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Ego tends to live in that, in that space, in a two-dimensional existence, okay? On the other hand, the big self is what can watch that, can see that play out, all right? Does that make sense? Okay. So. Someone who has their orientation in big self, it doesn't mean that they have killed the ego. It means that they are no longer subject to the ego's refraction. They see beyond that view. They don't need those glasses anymore. Does that help a little? Let me come back to that. If, they, if it doesn't make sense as I keep going on here, then let's ask that question again, okay? Next one was uh, that the motivations for their teaching is uh, to share, is generosity. Next one, and this is key, that there has been realization. That there has been realization beyond intellectual understanding. That they aren't talking about stuff that they haven't experienced firsthand. 
This is key. And this has got to sound weird to every one of you. Every one of you at this point is going, oh, he's saying he's enlightened. Okay? I've had a lot of really cool experiences. I've had a lot of great guidance. And I'm exactly like you. Nothing special. Okay? But the fact is, all of you are really special. And you probably don't know it. My job is to help you know it. Beyond self-esteem, that's just petty bullshit in relationship to spirituality. I couldn't give a damn about your self-esteem. What I really care about is your realization of what's timeless and infinite within you. Next one. They should be dedicated. They should have, oh, I love this one. He, he pointed this one out and I, of course, I suck at this, and that's a, a wealth of scriptural knowledge. <laughs> I don't know jack about, well, that's not entirely true. But, uh, I mean, I've, I've probably read all this stuff, <laughs> much of it, uh, uh, none of it stuck. So, and maybe that's good. <laughs> But I thought this was, that was really funny because I was really looking for that. I want somebody who knows, that knows everything about Zen, you know, and uh, ended up finding that person. And uh, uh, it was marvelous. I, I really think it's valuable. It's just an incredible weakness of mine. Um, uh, the next one, uh, they need to be skilled. They need to be skillful in how they communicate and how they meet people. That, that type of thing. And then lastly, and this is, I think, probably the coolest, that they couldn't care less about their student's outcome. In other words, that the teacher cannot really care too much about whether or not their students awaken or not. Because when they put, when the stakes, when, when that starts happening, it's known as a nata, help me, ata. Attachment, okay? And then guess what happens to the student's realization? It gets diminished. So that it's always there, it's always an offering. It's always available consistently. And that students can trust that. And then what you, you have, you have a great place for students to then bring their responsibility. So here's where the rubber hits the road, okay? What's the student's job? Well, the student's job, quite simply, is dedication. Dalai Lama uh, made this point. He was asked a question, and I'm totally paraphrasing here. The quote's wrong, so don't like, write it down or anything. But it was basically, he said, there is no substitute for hard work. And this is not easy. This means turning left when you're used to turning right. It means actually looking at your behavior and recognizing that every single behavioral choice that you make is a choice either towards awakening or away from it. What is awakening? Awakening is, as I mentioned before, the ability for any of us in this room to no longer view the world through the filter of ego. It's no longer, I love Eckhart Tolle's definition. Eckhart Tolle says, it is no longer identifying with thoughts and feelings. I would add, 
It's no longer identifying with thoughts, feelings, or time. As long as we are identifying with any one of those things, what are we doing? We're letting ego filter our experience. And what are we doing really here in spiritual work? We're actually practicing, 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 seeing through that until we start recognizing the profound nature of that line. It's all one thing. And it's all many. All at once. Surfing between those worlds, we begin to let go. And in letting go, we are Buddha. We see that we have always been Buddha. So, so this is from, this, this is from uh, the Vajrayana tradition or Tibetan tradition. So I have three uh, faulty attitudes, three faulty attitudes for students, and then three requisites or requirements. So the three faulty attitudes are number one, um, avoid being like an upside down vessel. And what was meant by this metaphorically, of course, is that you uh, are adhering to skepticism above all else. If you, if you are attaching to skepticism, you know, if you're always in that space, clinging to doubt, not having doubt, but clinging to doubt, then you will never, you're, you're an upside down vessel. The Dharma reign will never be caught. You aren't ready for spiritual work until you can turn that thing up, right side up. In addition to being an upside down vessel, you don't want to be a leaky vessel. <laughs> you don't want to just like not remember anything, not read anything, not practice anything, okay? You want to be able to play with this stuff. You want to be able to turn it and burn it. See what's going on. I mean, really wrestle with it. Discuss it with people and so forth. Okay? That's, that's a really cool, cool thing to do. So don't be a leaky vessel. Make sure the glue job is done well. All right? In case it's broken. Next, don't be like a polluted vessel. In other words, don't be uh, totally prejudiced, believing that you know what's right. A polluted vessel is a vessel that is characterized by deep egoic attachment as to what is right and what is not right. And it's very similar to the upside down vessel, but instead of being upside down, which is just the refusal, I can't even hear, the other one is I can hear, but it will never be pure because there's so much me mixed in with it. There's so much self mixed in with it. There's so much egoic stuff in there. So those are three areas of responsibility for each practitioner. The other requirements then, these are the three requisites. Be open-minded. You gotta be open-minded. And open-minded also means open-bodied, meaning that adhering to a certain way of being in the world with your body, a certain way of movement, a certain way of living, begin to question that. Doesn't mean throw it away, it means allow the question, allow wonder to begin to inform this. Allow your mind not to be closed. Allow for the fact 
that every single thing you believe, every single conviction that you have is just fine. But remember, it's inherently personal. It's yours. It's what you grab onto. And because of that, it is completely partial. Your version of truth, while perfect for you, is also a mere fraction of the totality of truth with a capital T. Allowing ourselves to sit in that space, to question every single thing we've ever thought to be true is freaky, but it's required. Next, you need to have a critical mind. You need to have, you need to bring your intelligence into this. You need not to, uh, you, you want to always, always be questioning. It doesn't mean clinging to doubt, but it means questioning, wonder. Teacher says something, especially if it rocks you, or if, you, if you're like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's your responsibility? Ask. And if it doesn't get asked in the Sangha after a Q&A, sign up for Dokusan one-on-one -on -one interviews, the greatest single catalyst to deepening one's spiritual practice there is. Really, really, really healthy, okay? It allows you to, it allows for the, uh, 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 did you ever have a, a course in college that was just, or high school that was just ever, it was so hard, and then suddenly you had a tutor kind of help you make sense of it? That's what the, the interview with uh, a teacher who knows what they're doing can sometimes, usually, I mean, for me, it was, it was invaluable, absolutely invaluable. Saved me years, I think. How, how, how would I even say that? I don't know. It worked out just fine. The last requisite is, believe it or not, aspiration. You gotta want this. This has to be important. This has to be, has to be way up there on the list of priorities. Awakening has to be way up there. Now, I am, uh, this is, the, this is from, the, uh, uh, from the Vajrayana tradition. I would say that aspiration needs to be number one. You have to, you have to want this with the, the totality of your being. Because what that does then is it forces kind of an opening. It forces wonder. It forces questioning. It keeps the spiritual work from being egoically bound. And it allows for you to then become a good teacher. And if this isn't about that, it's about nothing. If this isn't about every single person in here ultimately becoming an amazing spiritual teacher, whether formally or informally, doesn't matter. It's about all of us answering that divine call to what is great, what is huge, what is powerful, what is absolutely light-filled in each of us. And then we share it. So that's your homework. <laughs> you need to watch what kind of vessel you are in every moment. You need to wonder. You need to question. And you need to let that fire burn.
questions? awakens to the truth beyond name and form. Any of us, I mean, essentially what I was doing there is giving a two-bit definition of enlightenment. I take it back, a brilliant definition of enlightenment. Okay, and, and I mean, there are all sorts of great ways of talking around it. Um, what I was offering up was essentially uh, enlightenment is when you are no longer seeing the world filtered through the veil of ego. You're getting an unfiltered clarity. That's weird. An unfiltered clarity. This filter works, works differently. This filter actually pollutes. It gives us a polluted vessel, right? When we get beyond that filter, um, suddenly we see a, a very pure and open, real truth. And it's not just that we see it, it's that we can live from it consciously. that it no longer sticks. It no longer sticks. Let me give you an example. The, uh, an awakened approach to seeing is recognition. Okay? However, what we tend to run into is when the egoic filter's in place, it's not just that we're seeing, it's that we suddenly throw in evaluation that is based on future desires or past events, both bound by time. So what are we only seeing? We're only seeing this much of something that is actually an expression of the infinite. So another way of putting it would be uh, you, no longer, you no longer see reality through ego's lens. You take off those glasses and it's actually much more clear than when you had the glasses on. But I always thought this was the way it was supposed to be. Oh my God. <laughs> right? But you still have thoughts. It's just... Your relationship to them has totally changed okay, so that, so that there's no you that has thoughts. It's just thoughts. Thoughts arise. Mm -hmm. Thoughts fall away. Mm -hmm. Next. And they're okay. Yeah. They Whatever they are. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, um, enlightened activity or what we might call compassion, mm -hmm. compassionate activity, um, would mean that you are so clear about appropriate thought and inappropriate thought, one that is generous as opposed to one that is not, one that should be acted upon as opposed to one that is not, that then that becomes an embodied awakening. And that's really, I mean, all of us can have enlightenment experiences and so forth, all right? Embodying that truth that's been 
that's been called out in those moments, embodying that truth becomes the real work. That's why, as I've mentioned before, Suzuki Roshi, his, his point was, you know, strictly speaking, there are no such thing as enlightened people, only enlightened actions. So when those, when those thoughts, as you were saying, those, those not just discernments, person, but person, jackass. Right, right. When that second part is no longer there, when it's no longer I think this, it's just there is. There's a dropping away of part, I. Is that this part, it's just a little small. It's still there, it's just that it's... Utterly right. trivial. trivial, utterly trivial. It's not Yeah, it's unhooked. Good way to put it. Thank you. You bet. Yes, you had a question. I'm just going to continue on what you said. Mm -hmm. So you lose that inner dialogue, the inner dialogue of the judgment, like having that thought about, say, that person. Maybe instead of instead of saying losing that inner dialogue, it cracks you up. <laughs> you laugh at it. Laughter is that fluidity, that kind of woo, you know. Now, does that mean you never get angry? No. Does that mean you're cut off from the neck down? No. You never want to have sex again? Trust me. <laughs> yes, you want to have sex again. But you're no longer bound by it. You're no longer, it's no longer, it's, it's, just, it's just a wholly different way of moving in the world because it's no longer, the stakes aren't nearly as high. The desperation is gone. The need, it's, it's all good. It's all good. And we begin to kind of relax into that and trust that, and that's your birthright. And it can actually inform your sexuality. It can actually inform your gastronomy. It can actually inform your athletics. It can actually, right? Every single aspect of your life can then be uh, uh, informed by, this, by this, this spaciousness that you already have. Just got to be dedicated, right? Yes. You were really wanting to raise your hand right there. <laughs> well, I wanted to make sure you saw. Really? Okay. As long as there wasn't any attachment there, we're good. <laughs> okay, then maybe I should go over here. How can I, deal with a person, people in our lives that are that are unconscious, um, completely caught up in it, and the angry and um, blaming, like me, and blaming kind of everybody for their unhappiness um, on a regular basis. And, you know, normally, um, so just if it's just a person in my life, I can right. choose not to, I can kind of avoid and just kind of make nice and not um, make ways when I'm with them, but um, family member. Mm -hmm. So it's a little different. So how, how, how is it that, let me, I just want to make sure I can understand the question. It's like, how is it that you can deal with them in an awakened way? Mm -hmm. Okay, first of all, awaken. <laughs> okay. And barring that, first thing you, you, you can recognize is 
every single time that they start kind of doing this to you, you know, where it's like, yeah, 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 you know what I'm talking about? Every time you're in that space, they are giving you what's called a teaching. And that teaching is called, here's your attachment. And so they actually can be incredibly useful because what you can begin to do is welcome their unconsciousness as a way of inspiring your consciousness. Typically what happens is their unconsciousness inspires your unconsciousness and unconsciousness is held, is attached. And if it inspires yours, you have rock'em sock'em robots, right? right? And someone's head's gonna get knocked up, right? But if instead of rock'em sock'em robots, you are opening and you're allowing this stuff and you're either reacting to it from a place of total generosity, which may mean don't you dare say that again to me. Or it might mean, gosh, you having a hard day? Or it might mean, I need to leave. Whatever your response is, if it's coming from a place of consciousness, real, honest, unattached, or non-attachment, okay, what you're doing is you're meeting them fully, which is all they really want. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They feel totally, they, they lack any and all forms of validation and their ego is screaming, okay? So with that in mind, how do you deal with the two-year-old? You know? You don't beat them. Stop crying, smack, you know? Or better, don't hit people, smack, you know? <laughs> you know? No, it's not easy especially family members, um, they're, they're incredibly difficult. Those stories are incredibly thick. You know, there's not, we don't have much space between that story and, and ourselves. So it tends to, ah, it's like, the, it doesn't take much for the, them to, those arrows, hooks to get us, okay? But your consciousness actually straightens the barb, bringing full consciousness into that experience and recognizing fully when you can handle it and when you can't. When you can't handle it, you need to get out of it. And if you can't get out of it, you need to do your best not to harm. And it's not just not harming them, it's not harming yourself in the process. Oftentimes, and I've said this before, I think I actually said it to uh, Philip a few weeks back, it was that you know, sometimes the most compassionate thing you can say to someone who is flailing as an unconscious person is, don't you fucking do that again. Why? Why? Because what you have just shown them is what they're craving. Mm, I'm right here. I am right here. Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah? Now, before everyone in this room decides to go off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, go fuck yourself. <laughs> you know. That's not going to work. Yeah. No, that's, not, that's not the teaching. <laughs> okay? But Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. But you've got to understand that, that, that there, is, there is an appropriate response in there sometimes. As long as you are not feeling hate in your heart, as long as it's boundless love in your heart, your facility with language can be really, really powerful. 
you know? You can say some amazing things that can get people to, oh, okay. Now I know where you are. Bullies are so frustrated because bullies, no one stands up to them. And so they're just desperate to try to find, where do I end and, every, and everything else start? That's not enlightenment, that's psychosis, right? This is why it's so important. I mean, uh, the research on this is incredible, looking at, at children. And among the most important things you can do developmentally is provide boundary. I said no. I said no. Uh, okay, time out. I hate you. Get in line. <laughs> you have to have that kind of. Now, my kids are probably going to be so screwed up, you know, but still. Yeah, well, I don't know. Fortunately, I'm married to a good woman, but. Report back, please. I'm kind of curious. <laughs> yes? Bear with me in the phrasing of this question. I'm not quite sure how to put it. The concept of losing the ego or trying to lose the part of it that's harmful to you and others is something that I've been able to grasp and work with and practice. But it seems like in order to move forward in learning to be more spiritual, there's also this piece around grasping the concept of there being something eternal within me and others and that it's also connected. Yeah, but the only way you're ever going to get to either one of those places is by not grasping either. Okay. In other words... I want to be really clear about this, and I'm not trying to interrupt your question, but I want to make sure that that's really clear. Okay. The minute we grasp this is the minute it's gone. It's like spiritual, spirituality meets Heisenberg in that place. You know, you look at it, and it's not there. When you're not looking at it, it's there. Is it a wave or particle? If you are clinging to getting rid of ego, or if you are literally trying to get rid of ego, right, that's clinging to non-ego. So instead of trying to eradicate or push away or grasp non-ego, grasp what that's like, you won't, you won't find it until you really let go of whatever you think that might be like. The, the hardest challenge I'm having is that I wasn't taught any form of faith yeah. as a child. Right. And so I do see uh, and understand to somewhat the concept of the ego and what it does, but when it comes to this, this sort of uh, timeless, universal oneness and something that exists beyond my body. Mm -hmm. um, I'm feeling a block there that I can't move forward. Well, let me, try to, let me try to help you and everybody else out in this room. What I'd like you to do right now is I would like you to notice your breath. Just notice it. Is it an inhale or an exhale? Just notice it. Can you feel the rise and fall of that breath? Each, each one, right? Okay, something is noticing that. Maybe it's your mind. Okay, well, let's look at our mind. Let's notice our mind. We've noticed our body. We notice what that feels like to have that breath rise and fall. Now let's notice the thoughts that we may have. Let's think of something about this talk or this Q&A that we've had that is kind of stuck with us. Just allow it to be there. And notice it. Notice that thought. Notice the feelings you have around it. Is it positive? Oh, that was kind of cool. Or that was funny. You know, that was not so funny. Or whatever. Right? What is it that's noticing your mind? It's not your mind noticing itself. It's a deeper subject. Now, I'd like you to notice the passage of time 
every breath and every thought arises and falls within time. You can notice the passage of time. There's something in you that can notice the passage of time, that can witness time, that sees time. By definition, if it can see time, it cannot be time. There's a witness in you to this experience that is beyond time, that is beyond body, that is beyond mind, yet can have each one of those three things as an experience. And it's right here, right now. It's never not been here. Go through your day noticing. Go through your day noticing the noticer. And then report back. Thank you for coming tonight. Appreciate it.